really great start to the program, and uh, I think the next one will be as exciting. Uh, Susan Buckbinder uh, is a professor of medicine, epidemiology, and biostatistics at UCSF, um, and runs uh, a thing called the Bridge HIV program in the San, Fr San Francisco Department of Public Health. Uh, the San Francisco uh, Health Department is really one of the leading academic uh, uh, inst uh, institutions uh, in, this, in this area and has taken on a very active role in the, in the issue of PrEP. Uh, no better person to lead us through PrEP uh, than Susan, so Susan, it's yours. Thank you. Thanks so much, Paul. Uh, so these are my disclosures. And these are the learning objectives. We're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. epidemic, uh, talk about factors that may affect the effectiveness of pre-exposure prophylaxis, and then talk some about the practical uh, scale-up of, of PrEP in clinics and counseling-related issues. So the way I've organized this is really starting with the epidemiology because we need to know where the epidemic is most intense to figure out where we need to be doing outreach and really getting people into PrEP. Um, PrEP effectiveness, and I'm only going to be talking here about uh, daily tenofovir FTC. Uh, well, I'll be talking about other regimens of tenofovir FTC, but there are a host of newer agents and newer approaches that are coming into the pipeline that I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A. But I'm going to talk about why have we seen differences even in these tenofovir-based regimens um, in different populations. We'll talk some about serodiscordant couples and about condoms and what the role of condoms are. We'll talk some about safety considerations of these tenofovir-based regimens, including how you initiate uh, treatment and ongoing monitoring. And then we'll talk a little bit about what we know so far about scale-up to see are we likely to have a population-level impact given how well we're doing today. So um, this is the current state of the HIV epidemic in the United States. and. Uh, basically, we've got a four-to-one ratio of men to women, and we're also seeing, this doesn't seem to work, um, we're also seeing a decline um, in some populations uh, in, of new infections. Um, men are the major transmitters sexually of HIV for both men and women, so it's about 86% of infections in men are from, uh, are among men who have sex with men, some of whom also inject drugs. Um, and women, it's heterosexual risk. But there is some injection drug use transmission. And what we obviously want to do is try to get people access to harm reduction strategies, including clean injection equipment. But PrEP may also have a role here. So CDC announced uh, a couple months ago that we've now finally seen a reduction in new infections in the United States, 18% um, over the, the period of time, the six-year period from 2008 to 2014, particularly in people who inject drugs, 56% decline, 36% decline in heterosexuals. And in some groups of men who have sex with men, we're also seeing declines. And in some jurisdictions, we're seeing substantial declines. One of the things that I think is really exciting is Washington, D.C., which has one of the most intense epidemics, has had a 10% reduction per year. So um, some, some places are really doing quite well. But this is the number of annual infections that are happening in gay and bisexual men. 
And this dotted line are men in the 25 to 34 year age group. And we're seeing an ongoing increased number of infections in that population. So that is definitely one of the groups that we need to do some outreach to, as well as we continue to have these racial and ethnic disparities. So decreasing in white men who have sex with men, stable in African-American men who have sex with men, which means we're not making the same strides in that population. And they announced that we're actually seeing an increase in the number of new infections in Latino men who have sex with men. Age also obviously plays a factor. I showed you that um, it, the, not only are 25 to 34 year old men who have sex with men, the group in whom we see new diagnoses increasing, they also have the largest number of new diagnoses, a substantial proportion in the 13 to 24 year age group. But we can't forget about people, you know, those elderly people, 45 and older. Um, uh, and I'm going to show you a case uh, that shows that, yes, in fact, uh, people over the age of 45 do have sex, and um, that they account for 25% of new infections. So we do need to be asking our patients of all ages about their sexual practices, making sure they get tested for HIV, and if they're, not, uh, if they're negative and they are potentially at risk getting them PrEP. So let's talk a little bit about population differences, and I've just got two um, audience response questions, so hopefully you've got your, your phones dialed up. I'd like to just know, for my information from you, how do you recommend that PrEP be taken? Do you recommend daily PrEP for both men and women? Do you recommend less than daily dosing for men, but daily dosing for women? Do you recommend pericoital PrEP, so before and after sex, but only for men? Or do you recommend pericoital PrEP for men and women? Or do you not recommend that anyone take PrEP? So please uh, put in your answers now, and we'll see what we get. I did ask for Aretha, so I'm very happy about that. Okay. So, oh, oh shoot. Why didn't it register? Is it? Oh, there we go. Okay. So, overwhelmingly, 99% are recommending daily prep for men and women. That's my recommendation, and I'll tell you why in a bit. So this is just a, it's gonna be hard to read. The pink are the tenofovir-based regimens. We've got one vaccine, plug, I'm plugging vaccines for prevention, um, that's had some modest efficacy. Uh, everything to the right of this line and above the red line has been shown to be effective. Um, gels and rings also have been shown to be effective. But where we see our highest levels of efficacy have been in uh, two studies in men who have sex with men, Proud and Ipergay, and then in the Partners Prep study, which was serodiscordant couples in Africa, where we're seeing 80 plus percent um, reduction in new infections in people who've gotten PrEP. And so the big question is why? And one of the clear answers is you have to take the pill in order for it to work. So this um, the horizontal axis is the percentage of participant samples that had any detectable drug in them. And obviously, if nobody has drug in them, you're not gonna see effectiveness. And you can see that we have 
a, a very good dose response curve that the more people take it, the more likely it is to work. And so I'm going to talk about three potential reasons why we're seeing less um, effectiveness in women. We see that men who have sex with men and heterosexual serodiscordant couples in another study in heterosexual men and women had high levels of efficacy. And women, it's got much lower levels of efficacy um, or effectiveness. And so we're going to come back to that in a moment to talk about what are the potential biological causes for that. So there's clearly a behavioral cause, and that's that I think the trials were structured in such a way, and there's social and um, environmental factors that made it difficult for women to either take the pill or want to take the pill. So let's talk first about men, and what do we know about effectiveness in real-world settings? So I've shown you that we've got a couple of studies that showed 86% effectiveness in um, trials. But what do we know about what happens in the real world? Well, at Kaiser in Northern California, they started a program, probably the earliest really big launch of PrEP. And despite having almost 1,000 um, people, predominantly men who have sex with men, very high rates of sexually transmitted infections, 42%. So we know that they were having condomless sex, and yet no HIV infections. And since then, they've reported on a couple of infections that have occurred after people stopped PrEP. So they went off PrEP because they lost their insurance or they didn't think they needed it anymore. And that's a recurrent theme. In our PrEP demo project, um, 557 men who have sex with men and transgender women, again, over half had a sexually transmitted infection on follow-up. Only two breakthrough infections, and they were people after they had stopped their PrEP. And then we've heard about these case reports of PrEP breakthroughs. Two men who were on tenofovir alone for treatment of chronic hepatitis B who were, had breakthrough infections. Two who were on tenofovir FTC prep and appeared to be adherent but were infected with highly uh, multidrug resistant HIV. But then the, the big bombshell at Croy this year, uh, one of them, was that um, there was a man who has sex, had sex with, has sex with men um, from Amsterdam who was infected with wild-type virus. And I'm going to just show you briefly what we know about this man. Um, he, was, um, he was in his 50s, and he was having a lot of sex. So this is the number of anal sex partners, and they were between like 30, you know, 40 to 75 anal sex partners per month. Um, on one-third to two-thirds of the day, he was reporting condomless anal sex and between, with between two to five different partners per day, okay? So this was, uh, if, if you're going to overwhelm PrEP, this is where it's going to happen. Um, but as I said, people over the age of 40 do actually have sex, so um, remember that. But um, they collected dried blood spots at months six and eight, and Dried blood spots are kind of, um, to, to measure tenofovir in a dried blood spot is kind of like the hemoglobin A1C of measuring adherence to tenofovir because it gives you sort of a summary measure over the prior year. And uh, when he came in, he had very high levels of tenofovir um, at those time points consistent with very uh, adherent daily t taking of his tenofovir FTC. At eight months, he developed a fever. He had some dysuria. They got an HIV test. His, uh, he was antibody positive 
antigen negative, they didn't, weren't quite sure what was going on, and so they stopped all of his meds, and three weeks later, he um, developed viremia. So um, we'll talk a little bit about what to do in some of these kinds of situations. Probably in San Francisco, we would have started him on treatment as soon as we saw that he was infected, and then we could have backed off if it turned out that, in fact, he was not infected. Um, but this does look like a genuine case of breakthrough and that it is possible to overwhelm PrEP. And so you need to be sure that when you're telling people about PrEP that you never say it's 100% because I don't, I don't think it is 100%. But it is very good. And these are data from the IPREX study with the, the line. So this was the rate of infection in the placebos who obviously didn't have any, um, any drug. And this is the, the concentration of drug in their uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells. So they're... Um, that also gives you kind of a summary measure over a, uh, a month. And this just shows you in the group that got the tenofovir uh, FTC that the higher the level of drug, the lower the incidence rate. And then superimposed on that is a study that we did just to see what, what levels should you expect if you take the drug two days a week versus four days a week versus seven days a week. And this was done in low-risk individuals who were not at risk for HIV, just to get some PK information. And from this modeling, uh, it suggests that if you take two pills a week in these men who have sex with men, you have 76% effectiveness. Four pills a week gets you to 96%, and seven pills a week gets you to 99%. So that's the origin, the genesis of this thing that you only really need to take four pills a week, and that four pills a week is roughly equivalent to seven pills a week. So the way that I tell people to take PrEP is take it on a daily basis. This is for men. Take it on a daily basis, and if you miss a pill here and there, it's not a problem. But I don't actually recommend, and CDC does not recommend taking it four days a week, because you know that if somebody's supposed to take it four days a week, then it is going to be closer to two days a week. Um, Ipergay was a study that said, okay, well, given that we know that you probably, from animal studies, that maybe um, pre- and post-exposure uh, works, May, and people don't have sex all the time, maybe they could just take two pills two to 24 hours before sex. Apparently they were having a good time because they're smiley faces. And then um, they take a pill a day later and a, a day after that until two days, they've taken a daily pill until two days after their last sexual episode. And they, were, they call this on-demand prep and they are postulating that it tells you both when to start and stop PrEP. And what they found was this 86% reduction in the double-blind placebo-controlled component of their study. And when they looked at an open-label component where they were telling people, okay, now you are getting the active drug, do this, they saw an even lower rate of infection. So they're saying that 97% relative reduction versus placebo. But if you look at how many pills were they taking in a month, this was a fairly sexually active group, and they were taking 18 pills a month on average, which is a little more than four a week. So m my interpretation of this to date is that we don't really know if this pre- and post-coital uh, episodes uh, uh, prep works. CDC still recommends just daily prep and not pericoital. But there are some situations in which it may make some sense. But let's talk a little bit about, in order to do it pericoitally, you're supposed to be both planning ahead, because you've got to take it two to 24 hours before, as well as after. So we asked 1,000 men, do you, did you plan your last sexual episode? 
last anal sex episode, and it was about 50-50, about half did. And then we said, well, how long before did you plan? And, you know, most were minutes to hours. Um, <laughs> so it is a kind of planning, but it's not exactly necessarily what would get you to being able to do pericoital. And, in fact, um, another study of over 3,200 men who have sex with men, almost half said that they had had unplanned condomless anal sex in the past three months. So for that population, it's going to be challenging um, to, to use pericoital um, dosing. And for people who have casual sex, uh, have uh, casual partners, this is not the name of the study. I just named it the Hope Springs Eternal Study. Because they asked 97 men um, who have sex with men, do you think you'll have sex tomorrow? And what they found was that men were really good at figuring out when they absolutely wouldn't have sex, but not so good at figuring out when they would have sex. And so they said you should skip your daily dose only if there's a 0% chance that you'll have sex tomorrow because people were just not very good at figuring out when they were going to have sex. But there is a place where I think that episodic prep makes sense. And that is I've had patients come to me and say, you know, I'm really busy. I work really hard. I don't get out much. But when I go on vacation... I really go on vacation. And I think we should be asking our patients about, are there periods of time when you may be more highly exposed? And this was a study that, uh, of 7,300 men on a, an online survey, a quarter of whom reported that they had condomless anal sex with new partners while on vacation. So I do think this is something we could be doing. And it's kind of the malaria prophylaxis of, of PrEP, which is, was likened to malaria prophylaxis. So let's now turn to women and what the explanation for women may be. And this was data that were presented um, last summer at the IS meeting um, in which a group looked at the, patient, the participants who were in the Caprisa 004 study. They were using a tenofovir gel. So this was a, a locally applied tenofovir. And what they did was they said, let's take a look at the difference between women with a healthy vaginal microbiome with lactobacillus predominant, low pH, versus those who had microbial dysbiosis. So other bacteria predominance, higher pH, more inflammatory changes, and uh, perhaps that somehow um, was problematic. And what they found, in fact, was in the lactobacillus dominant group, there was a big spread. They had 61% effectiveness, whereas in the women who had this um, vaginal dysbiosis, there was no significant reduction. So that was an explanation potentially for why tenofovir gel may not work in some women. And this was replicated by Sharon Hillier who presented that, this at Croy this year in which she took 41 healthy non-pregnant HIV negative women, gave them tenofovir gel or film for seven days, did a peak and a trough level of, um, of tenofovir in vaginal fluid, uh, cervical uh, tissue, and plasma, and found that in those women who had dysbiosis, there was a lower level of tenofovir. So there's a difference in the metabolic pathway of tenofovir in the tissue and in the fluids in those women, whereas those who had lactobacillus predominance uh, had higher levels of tenofovir. So that confirmed those findings. So the question is, is this what was going on for oral PrEP? So also presented at CROI was the Partners PrEP study. Um, in which, remember that this was actually a study with three arms, placebo, tenofovir alone, or tenofovir FTC. And what they did was they said, well, let's take a look at baseline 
uh, vaginal dysbiosis or, or bacterial vaginosis um, based on a Nugent score. And let's go now and figure out was there different efficacy in the groups that had um, uh, vaginal dysbiosis. And what they found was that women who had a normal Nugent score with, uh, um, without this vaginal dysbiosis had about the same level of efficacy as those who had uh, bacterial vaginosis. So no difference in effectiveness. And, and we might assume that that might be the case because you're taking it systemically rather than applying it topically. So that's good news. So that unfortunately though rules out that that's the that, that may be the explanation for why a number of women did not have effectiveness with vaginal, with tenofovir gels, but not the pills. And so we'll come back to a third potential explanation right now which is um, if you look at what happens, some of the PK studies, and you look at how do you get to protective levels for 90% um, of the population, after seven doses, 89% get to that level for men, for what the level, uh, the protective level is for men, and 98% by thir the 13th dose. So what the CDC recommends is that you start um, tenofovir FTC prep seven days before you're going to have exposures. So there's no time like the present, but if you've got somebody, for instance, who is going on vacation and you're trying to figure out how long before do you start it, the recommendation currently is a week before. The issue for women is that tenofovir concentrates at a tenth to a hundredfold lower concentrations in vaginal tissue than in rectal tissue. And so this is a, a PK issue working against women, and that may also be part of the explanation for why women um, had lower levels of effectiveness. It's unknown how long before you need to actually take the pill. There's some controversy right now about could, is it seven days for women as well. CDC is currently recommending um, 21 days, so three weeks beforehand. But also what's really clear from the studies is that women to maximize uh, effectiveness have to take it six to seven days a week. So whereas you say for men, you know, if you miss a pill here and there, it's, it's not terrible. For women, I counsel them, you really need to try to take this every day to maximize your benefit. And what about people who inject drugs? Well, unfortunately, there's only been one study, effectiveness study, of tenofovir alone. It was not tenofovir FTC because it was really uh, the first effectiveness trial that was launched, uh, or efficacy trial that was launched. And um, what they found was that giving t uh, tenofovir, daily tenofovir, under directly observed therapy, to get to 80% effectiveness, they needed 97.5% adherence. So the qu and there were some reports this year at Croy about um, wild-type virus, or actually they hadn't done the sequencing of it, but um, breakthrough infections despite very high levels of PrEP. And so the question is, is it because it's tenofovir alone and that's less effective, or is it because the exposure level and route is, is different because you're getting exposed parenterally? So PrEP does work for, um, for people who inject drugs, but it, they may, again, also need to take it at a higher level. So this just summarizes the effectiveness data, highly effective in MSM, uh, they should take at least four pills a week. Um, I think there's insufficient data on pericoital dosing and ask patients about potential anticipated periods of risk. Women need to take it six to seven days a week um, 
And it, but the good news is it looks like BV does not affect uh, systemic PrEP. And for injection drug use also, remember that injection drug users may also be at risk sexually, but that they should be taking it on a daily basis. So let's talk a little bit about condoms and um, let's talk about monogamous dis uh, serodiscordant couples. So what's your answer to this? No need for condoms if the positive partner is fully virally suppressed. No need for condoms if the negative partner is on PrEP. Both viral suppression and PrEP are needed before stopping condoms, or condoms are more effective than uh, both treatment and PrEP. And Thank you for the musical selections. Okay, so we have some uh, combination of, most people are saying viral suppression and PrEP is best, but we've got it about equally distributed between um, if the positive partner is suppressed, there's no need for PrEP, and, uh, and we'll talk some about that because I think that in some situations that's true, um, and that condoms are more effective than uh, antiretroviral treatment or PrEP. And so we, we all know about the HPTN052 study. If you're fully virally suppressed, you don't transmit after about a six-month period um, of being fully virally suppressed. So if your partner has not been stably suppressed for at least six months, or people are hooking up and saying, but the guy, the, I met this guy and he told me he's virally suppressed. In that case, I don't think that's good enough. But in a stable serodiscordant couple where the positive partner's been stably suppressed for a long period of time, you heard Steve talking about um, that six-month period. Um, after that period of time, they probably, uh, they have a very low to no risk. It's, it's a negligible risk of uh, HIV. Um, but remember that a lot of people say that they're suppressed or think that they're suppressed and they're not. And these are some data um, about having a viral load of 15, over 1,500 copies of, in a cohort of 14,000 patients in care. And more than half had at least one viral load of greater than 1,500. And um, it accounted for 23% of the total observation time. So just remember that not everybody is suppressed. PrEP has been shown to be very effective as a bridge. So this was data from the um, Partners PrEP study where they offered the positive partner treatment and the negative partner PrEP for the first six months while the positive partner was going on treatment. If the positive partner didn't want treatment initially, they still kept the negative partner on PrEP until the positive partner had been on PrEP um, for that period of time, and there was a 95% reduction in new infections. So that does seem to be an appropriate way of moving forward, just that if somebody's been stably on uh, antiretroviral treatment, um, then they will be protected. Just remember that in all of these serodiscordant couple studies, a quarter to a third of the infections are coming from outside of the partnership. So you do need to know that the negative partner doesn't have other partners as well. And condoms are less effective than PrEP. So um, they're very effective when they're used. They're not used regularly. And we do need to encourage um, condom use where we can, where people might be able to, to, to reduce sexually transmitted infections. But the other sexually transmitted infections we're talking about, for the most part, are bacterial infections that are curable. So you really need to screen quite regularly. Um, so this is the practical information. You assess for risk. Before you initiate PrEP, you have to get an HIV test. Um, 
We see patients who come in who have not gotten an HIV test before starting. If somebody has a viral syndrome, do not start PrEP right away because they may be acutely infected. Get a, um, a viral load. If you think that they're at really high risk and there's a high likelihood of infection, you may even want to start them on treatment and then you can back off of that to just PrEP um, if they're not infected. But, um, and they need to have, um, so try to do a, 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 a test that at least is testing for antigen, if not a viral load as well. Um, you can't start tenofovir-based regimens if their creatinine clearance is less than 60. Check their hep B status because you're going to need to monitor them if they go off of tenofovir. They may rebound. Um, but it's not a contraindication to starting. Do STI and pregnancy testing, and then counsel about the startup syndrome. So people are going to sometimes feel, particularly GI symptoms are most prevalent, usually last for a couple of weeks. You've really got to talk to patients about the fact that they are going to have this, but it is going to be transient, or else they often stop. And then every three months, you're going to get HIV testing, STI testing, and um, the recommendation is a creatinine at three months and then every six months thereafter. We've got data from men who have sex with men studies, from heterosexual, um, heterosexual uh, transmission studies, and people who inject drugs, and all of them suggest that if you start with a higher creatinine, you're going to be more likely to, to have a bump in your creatinine. And if you're smaller, you may have a bump in your creatinine. So those, and if you're older, you may have a bump in your creatinine. So those are, th those are groups that you may need to monitor more closely. But that um, in the partners prep study, if they monitored every three months as compared to every six months, they just ended up chasing a lot of um, one-time bumps in creatinine. And so it, after a three-month check, you can go to every six months unless you've got some concerns for that particular uh, person. And also, all of those um, reverted to normal after people stopped. Bone mineral density also goes down. This is in the under 25 and over 25 group. These two lines are for placebo and the people who were not adherent, which are obviously um, very similar. But if you were adherent, it did go down, but it comes right back up when you stop um, treatment. And it seems to level out at about 1% to 2% reduction in bone mineral density. We don't see any clinical evidence of uh, problems, so we don't think that, uh, that that's osteoporosis, for instance, is, is an absolute contraindication to PrEP. We don't know if TAF works. There's a big trial going on right now. We do not recommend TAF for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, no evidence that having a lot of sexually transmitted infections reduces the effectiveness of PrEP. We know that there has been an increase in sexually transmitted infections that started long before PrEP was available. PrEP may be exacerbating that, but there are some modeling data, at least, that suggest that if you, if you screen people every three months, you could actually reduce the risk, uh, reduce the rates of sexually transmitted infections because so many of them are asymptomatic. So these are, this is a summary of the renal issues, just um, the people who are older, smaller, and those with uh, creatinines of 60 to 90 uh, uh, creatinine clearances may warrant closer screening. Uh, bone mineral density and sexually transmitted infections don't seem to be a problem. And we don't see resistance, for the most part, developing in people unless we start them on PrEP when they're already infected. And then giving them two drugs is inadequate. So you really need to be sure that people are not infected to start with. And then I'm going to close just by showing these are some estimates from the CDC that suggest that uh, about half a million men who have sex with men and about half a million women 
could benefit from PrEP. And in total, it's about 1.2 million. And from their database, it's about, they had 12,000 on PrEP, which is clearly an underestimate, that, but that's 1% of the people who might benefit from PrEP. So we're nowhere near where we need to be. And when I talked about the disparities, we're not seeing, this is the under 25, we're not seeing that we're reaching younger people with PrEP. And we are, we have, we're perpetuating the racial and ethnic disparities by not reaching into populations of African Americans and Latinos for men or women. Um, and this is a survey, you know, we are the rate limiting step as providers because people, we need to ask our patients and then also we need to be willing to prescribe. Um, PrEP awareness increased over this annual survey that Don Smith at CDC did from 2009 to 2015 from about a quarter to about two-thirds who were aware of PrEP, but still only 7% had prescribed PrEP. When people learned that it was so effective, then 90% of providers said that they would provide it, but they were most likely to provide it to serodiscordant couples and least likely to provide it to people who had sexually transmitted infections. And I think that this is the issue that we're concerned that we're going to be causing behavioral disinhibition um, when we already know that people don't use condoms. And so while we can encourage safer sexual practices, I always use the analogy that I don't withhold statins from my patients with hyperlipidemia because I'm afraid they're gonna eat more ice cream. I give them the statin, <laughs> right? And it's the same thing, but there's all of this um, uh, these other issues around sex. So I'm going to close with this slide that shows there's a great um, flowchart on the Project Inform website that helps you to figure out and helps you to work with your patients about patient assistant programs that are available. And there's a whole range of other um, resources that are available to you and to your patients. And I really highly recommend that you um, look those up. And I think those are in your syllabus. And there's also a please prep me that can uh, help people to find a local provider for prep and you can also get, you can add where the providers are. So I guess I'll stop there, thank you. Thanks Susan and uh, again questions uh, by cards. Uh, you may have uh, addressed this when I was going upstairs. By the way, I think we have 51 people now in the overflow room so I'm floating an idea for next year if we just set up both rooms and we alternate speakers in each one. I think that could work. Um, but so I, I, I'm not sure if you said it uh, and I missed it, but uh, I've heard you talking about uh, women and the fact that they don't seem to really know that they might be at I, risk. And yeah, I didn't talk about that specifically, but it's such a challenge because in study after study, when we've actually gone out to try to find high incidence cohorts of women, we're, we're very unsuccessful. And part of it is that the women generally don't recognize that they're at risk. They often have a single partner that they weren't aware was also at risk. So again, I think working with our female patients about um, any potential risk and trying to mitigate that risk as best we can is really important. But a lot of women um, think that PrEP is only for men who have sex with men. And trans women, we've done a great disservice by really pitching this as, a, as an MSM drug. We need to get this to all populations um, who may be at risk. So uh, you mentioned the case of, of, a, of a man who really had a very large number of exposures. Um, might you consider using a full, um, like a PEP regimen, 
treatment instead of a PrEP regimen, i.e. full three-drug regimen? It's an interesting question. I think that um, this was an unusual case. I don't know whether that would work better in this kind of a very highly exposed case. I suppose it's reasonable, but I don't, we're in a completely data-free zone. Um, question about men who use uh, drugs for erectile dysfunction. Is that another indication for PrEP? Is that something you consider when you I think the prescribe? absolutely, if somebody's asking for um, erectile dysfunction drugs, then presumably they are sexually active. And so um, you really do want to question in what way are they sexually active. And it may be um, facilitating more partners. And so that would be a group that you would want to offer PrEP to. Um, there's a lot of questions. Uh, how long do you continue prescribing PrEP uh, in patients who aren't getting HIV tested uh, every three months? Yeah, so this is really challenging. I really, the thing that I don't want to do is have gaps in, in PrEP because it's, if you go off and go on, that we're really concerning. I, I am looser, I want people to get STI screening. But I think it's really critical that they get the HIV screening because I really don't want to be treating somebody who is not um, taking PrEP. So I will continue PrEP if needed for another you know, period of time, maybe uh, a couple of months max. But if they won't come back in for PrEP, then I don't feel like I can actually treat them effectively because I don't know whether they're infected or not. I, I think it, it's going to depend on your patient. And if you've got a really long-standing history of high adherence with that patient, um, that you might be a little looser about that. So uh, interesting situation. Uh, what about a couple, heterosexual couple, uh, during pregnancy Great. Um, for serodiscordant couples? Yes. Um, if they state they want to be abstinent and stop PrEP, is it, what do you think about that situation? If they state they want to be abstinent and go off of PrEP, or they want to get pregnant and be on PrEP. Let's uh, take prep it is, both ways. PrEP is great for serodiscordant couples, heterosexual couples that are trying to get pregnant. Now, remember that if the woman is infected, you can just get the semen from the man and use the turkey baster, and the woman can get, can get pregnant without uh, exposing the man. But when the man is the positive partner, you know, we used to do all this sperm washing and all of this other stuff. PrEP is really, appears to be highly effective, and so I really do recommend PrEP for uh, couples that are trying to get um, pregnant. So uh, uh, another situ situation that's common, I think, uh, a couple, couple that's monogamous, um, let's say, it doesn't say here, but a, a MSM couple. Um, do you still think it's necessary in that situation to do the Q3 month checks and STI screens and, and all the rest? I, you know, again, I think it's going to be a little bit about how well you know your patients, but I'll also just say that time and time again, I think we're just really bad at getting sexual histories from our patients um, because um, there are multiple episodes of uh, you know, immaculate conception as well as uh, <laughs> HIV transmission that occurred somehow. And so I think that it may be in the way we ask, it may be the social desirability, all of those kinds of things. But if you've got a really stable couple where they're both clearly monogamous um, and that isn't changing, then I do think you can back off of the screening a bit. So an interesting question. The um, STI screening. Yeah. You still get the HIV. An interesting test. question that um, I think might be the future of things. Uh, the question is, where is most of uh, your PrEP uh, distributed? Is it in HIV clinics or in non? It's a great question. And so, talk yeah. about the possibility of moving PrEP to the general medical 
So I'd like setting. to talk about moving it to the general medical setting and into the pharmacies. So there's some novel um, uh, programs right now. We're launching one in San Francisco of actually getting pharmacists to prescribe the PrEP and do the, the, the follow-up and the, the screening. And the thing is that STI screening and HIV testing doesn't have to be a huge deal if you don't have to go in and see your provider. But if you've got to get an appointment to get in and see your provider, then you've got a real you've got multiple roadblocks for actually getting in. So one of the issues is that we've trained general pr uh, practitioners to say that uh, HIV meds are challenging, co uh, complex, and you should only do this um, if you are well situated to do this and you've got a lot of experience. PrEP is a completely different thing. So we've got to make it clear that really, I've given talks to groups of nurse practitioners and said, this is so much easier than, ma than managing congestive heart failure and diabetes. This is really, it's like one pill, once a day, you get these tests, it's very algorithmic. Which also means that we should be able to use other providers in our clinics, including nurses and including pharmacists, to actually do this, and Kaiser does this. You see a provider for your initial PrEP uh, prescription, and after that, you just go to the pharmacy and the lab, and that's it. And everything's all sort of automated. And I think that's the future, as well as panel management, to be sure people are are following up with their testing. Great, great. Um, so um, let's talk about the PEP prep transition. Yes. So yep. let's say a person comes in for PEP. How do you manage the transition? That's a great question. To prep? Yep. So what we do is we, if somebody's had an exposure, and remember. PrEP is most effective as soon after the exposure as possible. So if you've got somebody who doesn't want PrEP, but you think they might be exposed, they, you've got this 72-hour window, but it doesn't mean you should wait 71 hours. You really, it's most effective when you get in as early as possible. Um, and then what we do is we give 28 days of PEP, and then we transition immediately to PrEP. Um, we get HIV testing. It's possible that we'll miss an infection that will show up, so again, you may want to do some, uh, some testing a little more frequently in the first month or two after the transition from PEP to PrEP, but it's a great thing to do, and anybody who is on, who needs PEP should certainly be asked about whether this really was a one-off or whether they might benefit from ongoing PrEP. Now, you didn't really, um, you didn't have time, uh, so you didn't really dig into the whole STI uh, issue, but um, do you want to talk just a little bit about uh, how you do the STI screening? Uh, do, you, do you adjust it for the kind of behaviors uh, that, that uh, the person reports, or do you do no. all three sites no. all I the mean, time? I mean, I, I, I just keep seeing these people with acute infections who had no risk, you know, right. and so um, no risk that we were able to discern. And so, like, the, the resident or the fellow will say, what, did, what do I do as a teaching point? And I said, the teaching point is we are terrible at taking um, sexual histories. So for men, it's oral, anal, uh, and urine. For women, you might check about anal, but again, I would err on the side of more screening rather than less. In, in men who have sex with men, there's a huge epidemic of asymptomatic um, rectal and pharyngeal gonorrhea as well as chlamydia. And so that's why this modeling study suggests that if you screen people every three months, you could actually lower the incidence within a population if you've got enough people on uh, PrEP and you're doing your consistent screening. And talk about self-swabbing. Uh, self-swabbing is also really, I mean, that's what they do at Kaiser. They, you pick up your swabs, you swab yourself, you go and get your blood drawn, um, and then you 
pick up your prescription. And it's, it's all sort of contained, and it can be very quick and very easy. And, and of course, if the patient isn't comfortable doing the swab, then you can do it for them. So how long after uh, a previous uh, seronegative HIV test um, uh, can you, how long can that interval be to start PrEP safely? Um, that's a great question. We, I mean, uh, some people are moving towards same-day PrEP if you've got a rapid test that you can use to uh, rule out infection, um, and you won't have your viral load back yet, but you can, if you're going to get it back in a day or two, then you could, you could add a third drug at that point if they were actually infected. So th there are going to be some differences of opinion. I think if there's any high-risk exposure, the problem is that you can always be chasing that window period, and you can also always be chasing, if you get your test um, today, which is Wednesday, I got that one right on the, um, <laughs> the, the quiz. Um, you know, and you wait until next Wednesday, and they've had exposures, then you're going to need to test again. So um, what we tell people is if you've been on PrEP and you stop PrEP for more than seven days, then you should come back and get retested before you restart. Um, so, you know, that seven-day period is coming off of PrEP. But if you haven't actually started PrEP, you probably want to get a test within several days of uh, – you don't want to test a month ago or, you know, you – Again, if they've had absolutely no exposures in the last week, then maybe you can do that. But then you're going to want much closer follow-up because, again, we're really bad at getting sexual histories. And you always want the fourth-generation test? I always want a fourth-gen test because – and most places are, are transitioning to fourth-gen tests because you'll pick up the antigen before you'll pick up the antibody. Oral tests, oral HIV tests are inadequate for uh, PrEP and should not be used because that adds six weeks to the window period. Um, so you really don't want to be using, it really is a three-month window period with these oral, especially these second-gen oral tests, but you're still adding six weeks to the window period, and you don't want somebody on PrEP for an additional six weeks if they're infected. You really need to pick them up as being infected right away so you can start um, a three-drug regimen. So a couple questions about um, uh, incipient inf if you worried about incipient uh, inf infection while a person's on PrEP, what do you use? And why in the CROI case did they stop PrEP instead of starting uh, uh, ART? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I think that they were not sure what was happening because it was an the person was, um, was antigen negative, um, but they were on, uh, on PrEP. So I think one of the challenges is that you could become infected be suppressing your viral load if it happened recently, and have these kind of discordant results. We've gotten we've gone away from using Western blots. This person actually had a Western blot, and you could see it evolving. Um, if there's a question that somebody's actually infected, so I, I wouldn't just stop everything. I would probably intensify, put them on treatment, and continue to follow them. And if it turns out that that was a false positive test and they weren't actually infected, then I I cut back, but that's also what we do in San Francisco when we see somebody who may be acutely infected, who we get an initial positive on before getting the confirmatories, we will start treatment and because we can always take them off of treatment. Um, and sometimes the confirmatory test is negative because it's a second gen test and they're in acute infection and so they've got a, a positive fourth generation test, a negative second generation test, which is differentiating between HIV 1 and 2, but they'll have a viral load of, you know, over 10 million. So last qu question, I think pretty quickly because of the time. Uh, any recent studies on uh, PrEP affecting uh, risk behavior? 
So we, you know, there are a number of studies that suggest that it hasn't affected risk behavior, but it's also clear that there is some proportion of, so some of the people, it's not going to affect risk behavior because they weren't using condoms in the first place. And then some group may feel more comfortable with either more partners or uh, less condom use. So I don't think we've got a really good handle on it yet, but we do think that there, pro there probably is an increase in uh, condomless sex. We want to promote healthy sex, um, so that's why we want to, you know, but some people aren't able to use condoms. Um, and so we, we probably see some increased risk, and that's why we want to do all of that STI screening so that we can treat the negative consequences. Great. Thanks, Susan.